Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. This is the first sermon of uh, 20 on the E100 plan, uh, five verses, five passages each week, and I'll be preaching on one of those. This is uh, day number one, look at the beginning. Some have taken the Bible and put it like this, and the New Testament is really the foundation, on top of the foundation of the Old Testament. If you didn't have the Old Testament, the Old Testament makes no sense. And some have said the foundation of the Old Testament would be the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And that, out of those first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the rest of the Old Testament is really built foundation. And others would say beyond that, Genesis is a foundation of the Torah, or the Pentateuch. And chapter 1 probably is a foundation of Genesis. And chapter 1, verse 1, is a foundation of everything. This is really chapter 1, verse 1, is a foundation of everything in this book. And I really think that those who don't know a thing about Christianity around the world, don't know anything about Christianity, they probably heard Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On January 7, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, opened his morning sermon as following. He said, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I would not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian life is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage in the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. These words spoken over a century and a half ago by 20-year-old C.H. Spurgeon were true then and they're true today. Another person wrote, I believe in God is perhaps one of the most meaningless statements we can make today. I believe in God. The word God has become a canvas on which each is free to paint his own portrait of the divine, like the boy scribbling his, on his desk. He can draw God according to whatever specification he please. For some, he is psychic energy. For others, he is whatever is stronger than I am, or inner power to lead us to deeper consciousness. To say, I believe in God, might simply mean that we are seeking, seeing ourselves in a full-length mirror. I agree with that. Sometimes people say, I believe in God. We need to ask, what does that mean? What God do you believe in? Or sometimes people say, I don't believe in God. We need to ask them, what God don't you believe in? I might not believe in that God either. So we need to understand who God is. So how, how do you see God? How do you see God? And some, I'm going to give you some illustrations how some people see God. Some see God as an eager bellhop. You know what a bellhop is? Little guys in the, in the uh, hotels, a little round square hats you know, and, and getting so forth. Uh, eager, eager bellhop because he's always there when you need him. He carries your luggage for you. He never argues with you because you're in charge. His only responsibility is to make you happy. And when he gets from you is a smile, 
a thank you, and if he's lucky, a tip. Some see God as a stern school teacher whose destiny it is to make to ruin a year of your life. He's the ultimate record keeper who monitors all your activities and gives hard tests to see if his students will suffer. He has wants and demands, but seemingly never gives or encourages. Some see God as an impersonal scientist. He's intellectual, very smart, but not emotional. He spends all his time locked away in his heavenly laboratory working on some unknown wonders. Some see God as a clever magician who must always work through signs and wonders and miracles. If there's no manifestation of power, they conclude God's not really involved. Some see God as a heavenly grandfather whose presence is acknowledged, who was visited occasionally, and who smiles and tells me loves them when they misbehave. He kind of says, you know, boys will be boys. Some people see God as Mr. Fix-It. They view God as someone who is really worthless to them at all, except when they're in a fix, and is unnecessary when everything's going well. He called the handyman in when there's problems. Well, who is a true God? What does the Bible say about this God? What is the kind of God we worship? We spent 15, 20 minutes singing songs to this God. I hope you sing it to him. We're worshiping God. Who are we worshiping? Who is this God? Now, Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of creation. This was act one of our cosmic drama. Genesis 1 and 2, and especially Genesis 1-1, answers the most important question of life. Who is God? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does this short passage, these, these few words in English, say about God? Well, I think it says a lot. I want to unpack this for you. In the message, Eugene Peterson introduces the book of Genesis by writing these words. He says, first, God. God is a subject of life. God is foundational for living. If we don't have a sense of the primacy of God, we'll never get it right. Get life right, get our lives right. Not God at the margins, not God as an option, not God on the weekends. God at center and circumstance, God first and last, God, God, God. I like that. So here we look at our text, Genesis 1, 1. Let's just unpack it just for a few minutes here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, first of all, let's look at the word God. In the Hebrew is the word Elohim. The word El, E-L, in Hebrew is, means God. And I think the, the background of that is the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One. Elohim is really plural. So in the Hebrew, literally, it's God's. That's interesting. I don't think we can unpack that. But the word Elohim, literally God's, or the name for God here, is used 35 times in chapter 1. So this is the name. It's really almost a generic name. It's like in Islam, the name for God is Allah. It's just, it's just the Arabic word for God. Elohim is really just our English word for God. But it's plural. That's interesting. But there's a singular um, verb in the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word there is bara, B-A-R-A. And that is, the word means created. It means, it only refers to God. Every time the word bara is used, 
it only refers to God. You and I don't borrow. <laughs> only God does. And what does he create here in verse 1? He creates the heavens and the earth. Now, the Hebrew language has a very small vocabulary, and they don't have as much as English does. But what it means, creates the heavens and the earth, it means he created everything. Everything. And later on in the New Testament, he creates everything visible and invisible. God created everything. So what it's saying here, that in the beginning, when, when creation started, when the universe started, God was there, and he created everything. That sounds so simple to our ears. We've heard this our whole lives, but this is profound. This is quite different from other worldviews, from other religions. And, and it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. We talk about before creation. We can't talk about that because at creation, as science have understood in the last 100 years or so, at creation, at that, that beginning point of creation, Space was created, time was created, uh, matter was created, energy was created. There was, at one point, nothing, and then there was all the stuff that God created out of nothing. He was there when the creation started. He was the creation. He started the creation from nothing. That's what we call God creating things out of nothing. So before, God was before the beginning, he was for before the creation. See, that's why you can't, we discussed this before on Wednesday nights, why that's hard to say before is a time word. And how can you say something is before time without using a time word? But God was before time. God was before space. God created space. So when the universe was created, he didn't, he didn't throw it into space. He created space to put the universe in. Ah, my head's spinning. And energy, space, time. So that's very briefly, very briefly. And there are volumes of books out there that discuss this as one verse. But I want to take a negative approach and say, what does Genesis 1, 1 not teach? What does it teach against? i got several things here I want to, to kind of unpack for us. Genesis 1.1 does not teach polytheism. Now, polytheism, poly means minty, theism means God, but means there are many gods. It says here in Genesis 1, there's only one God. It's a plural word, gods, but it's really just one God. Polytheism means there are many gods out there. And we discussed some of this before. But our Mormon friends, Mormon theology teaches that there are many gods out there. And again, don't tell your Mormon friends they're polytheistic. They will argue with you, but they do agree there are many billions of gods out there, and if a faithful Mormon, he or she may become a god one day. They are polytheistic in that sense. There are many, many gods. Many forms of paganism. Paganism is that type of religion that really worships nature. There are gods in trees and gods in brooks. There's gods in, in you and me. There's gods in the mountain. So they're really different gods. And many forms of Hinduism. In fact, it, it, there is no one Hinduism, there's Hindu religions, but some say there's over 330 million gods in Hinduism. Polytheism does not teach against pantheism. The word pan, P-A-N, is from the Greek word which means all or everything. And this means all is God, everything is God, pantheism. All there is is God. 
Anything you look is God. This, this pew is God. Uh, this, this book is God. I'm God. The telephone pole is God. The problem is with human life, you don't know you're God. You've got to meditate. and You've got to work on this, and you'll come to enlightenment. You'll come to an understanding that you are God, too. You are part of God. Everything is God. So, in a sense, if the universe somehow could be destroyed, God be destroyed, too. Because the universe equals God. God equals the universe. Everything is God. And that's called monism, M-O-N-I-M-S. That means everything is one. That's pantheism. This verse teaches against that. It's not everything is not. We have, in this verse, we have God and we have everything else. They're not the same. God is a creator of that. It's against Oh, pantheism, a God is in everything, everything's God. Uh, many forms of Hinduism is this way. Uh, many of the New Age teachings, like what Oprah teaches and others, is that everybody is God. You're God. You're part of God, but you don't know that yet. You're divine. There's, there's a Christ in you. You've got to meditate or do something, and you'll realize this. Uh, Taoism uh, from the East and also many forms of paganism again, everything is God. Next, it teaches against dualism. The dualism means you have matter and you have spirit. We have its, matter is eternal and spirit is eternal, or God is eternal. And this teaches against that. Uh, matter did not exist at one time, according to this verse, and God created matter. Matter is not eternal, but had a beginning. Only God is eternal. Now, we don't use that term dualism in this way that much, but I mean... I need to have a seminar on Mormonism. I keep talking about Mormonism. But Mormons really don't believe this verse. Their, their theology goes against this verse. Because Mormonism, matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, matter is eternal, not the spirit. Because the gods and gods out there were once humanoids, once humans like us, and progressed to the Mormon gospel and became a god themselves. And this universe we have was not created by God or a God, it was just organized. The God or gods took matter, which is eternal, and organized it, moved it around, built it to this universe today. Quite, quite, quite different from the biblical understanding of the universe and of God. So this verse teaches against dualism. It also teaches against materialism or naturalism. Or we might call this secular humanism. This is the, that Darwinian evolution in which there's no God at all. All there is is matter. All there is is nature, is a universe. All there is, there is no spirit. There is no God. There is no, not, no anything except the physical universe, the, the, the laws of, of physics and chemistry and, and the laws of nature, all it is. This is the Western worldview today. This is what you're taught in school whether it's kindergarten through Ph.D. in colleges. This is what our society teaches. This is the religion of Western culture, that all there is is the natural, is, is the matter. Now, this verse teaches against this. It says here, there was God who was spirit, and at some point, at some point, that's not a good word either, at some point, God decided to make Matter, make the universe, make nature, make the cosmos. And lastly, this verse teaches against atheism. There is no God. The 
atheism comes from the, uh, the Greek. A is like, it's called alpha privative. It's like in English, the word or the, the word un, U-N, means not. means not God. No theism. No God. This is a view that there is no God. But this verse clearly says before creation, before the universe, there was a God. So the, this verse already says this is what is not from the Christian perspective. Not, there's no polytheism, there's no pantheism, there's no dualism. It's not just materialism and naturalism, and there, it teaches against that there is no God. The Bible affirms that God was before creation of the universe, and God created the universe out of nothing. So second, let's spend the rest of our time looking at what Bible, what Genesis 1-1 teaches about God. Look, look positive. First of all, God is eternal. What does that mean? In relation to time, God has no beginning and no end. Now, I think we, I think we can kind of get some kind of understanding of no ending. Because we sense there's eternity, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes that there's, he's put eternity in our heart. I think we have some feel, some concept that we as believers will live forever and we can get a grasp of that and God lives forever. But the, the God has always existed, had no beginning, escapes us. That, that, that's hard to put our head around that. That really is. But this verse is teaching that God is eternal. In relation to time, God has no beginning and has no end. There was beginning of creation, but before the beginning, there was God who had no beginning. See, the word eternal is, is really almost a negative term. I don't mean that in a negative way, but this is kind of comes from the Latin. Eternal means not terminal. <laughs> There's no terminals. For God, at the beginning or at the end, God is, does not have a terminus. He doesn't have points at either end. He is eternal. Even the name of God, he says, is eternal. When, when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked him in, Gen- in Exodus 3, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. He, he takes the, the Hebrew word to be and gives this to, to Moses. I am who I am. I will be who I was. I was who I'm going to be. All that stuff. About six different ways you, you could say that. But basically, God to, to Moses in the burning bush is saying, I'm the ever-present one. I've always existed. I'm existing now. I always will exist. I am the being. I am the to be. I am. And we translate that into uh, Yahweh today. Furthermore, not only is God eternal throughout eternity, he's always been God. He didn't progress like Mormons teach, become God. He's always been God. Listen to Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternal. Always the same. Because God is eternal, then all his attributes he has are eternal as well. God has had all these attributes and always will have these attributes. God is not a a here today and gone tomorrow kind of God. He is an eternal, forever God that will always be here when we need him. We know that no matter how long we live, we can't outlive God. Because God is eternal, we as his children will live with him eternally. 
Now, let me spot, stop just for a second and talk about eternal. Uh, we, rightly so, when we share the gospel and talk to one another and talk to others, how you can have eternal life. That's good, and that's, that's biblical. I think many times we're thinking life with God that will live forever, a, a, a quantity of time. And that's true. But I think more importantly, it's not just a time that does not end. Eternal is really the attribute of God. Eternal life is really God's life in us. If we have God in us, we have eternity. We have God, and God lives forever. We will live forever. It's more of a quality of life. A quantity, yes, but a quality of life is eternal life. Because even Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, which is a different kind of life. Second, God is omnipresent. Those are Latin words, omni meaning all. He's everywhere. He's, he's present everywhere. God's omnipresent enables him to be everywhere in the universe, in all its parts, everywhere at all time. So I don't understand this either. Everywhere in the universe, God is 100% present. It's not like he's part here and part on Mars and part in some other galaxy there, you know, like we might be. But he's 100% present everywhere in the universe. Not in part, but the whole of God is present in every place in the universe. The omnipresence of God can be overwhelming as we think about it. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple of God, which, which he's just built. And he has this tremendous this prayer he, he prays. And he says in 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The whole heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Wow. The idea that God is present everywhere at all time is both uh, reassuring. It, uh, that's good. We can't get away from his presence, and that's good, but also threatening thought to some. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, Where can I go from your presence, or from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Make my bed in Sheol, place of the dead. Behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. You can't escape from his presence. On the other hand, we see in Amos 9 that the omnipresence of God can be a real threat. In this passage, God is declaring that Israel cannot escape the judgment of God, no matter where they go, because God will always be there. You can't escape. I think for us it means we're never forsaken. He'll always be with you. He knows where you are. Because God is omnipresent, he will always be with you and me no matter who and where we are. He, wherever we go, he's there too. Though all people forsake me, he will never leave us alone. He'll always be with us. He'll be there to comfort us when we're sad, lift us up when we're down, to guide us when we're lost, protect us when we're in trouble, and to save us in that day when Jesus comes to take us home. God is also omnipotent, all-powerful. His power is unlimited. I'm not sure we can fully understand that either. Uh, we just saw this last week or so, the big explosion in Beirut. You saw everyone's seen the, the it's unbelievable power, just, just bam. It's, it's like a atomic bomb, practically. 
And we've seen atomic bombs that were dropped in, in uh, Japan uh, many years ago, and, and we just had all that kind of power. Even just the, just the rocket taking off to go into space is just a power. And we just, we just in awe of all that. And, and so many things have power, uh, whether they're, they're motors or jets or rockets, but their power is limited. They can only do so much. In fact, we have measurements of power. Automobile engines are measured in horsepower or pound, foot-pounds of torque. The power of electricity is measured in watts and kilowatts and megawatts and gigawatts. The power of rockets is measured in pounds of thrust. So we can measure these kinds of power, but in the universe, only God's power cannot be measured because God's power is unlimited. It's power that is beyond measure. Only God has the power to create something out of nothing. Only God can create the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars. Only God can resurrect the dead. All-powerful. Because God is omnipotent, He has power to protect us from our enemies, even from the devil. He has the power to overcome any adversary and give us the power to overcome as well. He has the power to fulfill all His promises He's ever made to us. So if we can somehow, in creation, put all the power, and and just in the last hundred years, we've learned how to harness the atom, how to split the atom and create power. I don't understand that either, but how mankind has done that. And can you imagine all the powers in every atom in the universe that could be released? I, I can't. But God is, if you put all the power in the universe together like that over here, God is more powerful than all that. He has to be to create that power. I'm I'm speaking way out there. I'm losing myself. God is omniscient. means he knows everything. Now, we go to school and we read and we study, even out of school, formally and informally, to get more knowledge. That's who we are, what we want to do. And even the most smartest person in whatever area doesn't know everything. In this technology, technological age of computers and internet, we know more and more. They, they said this years ago, and I guess it's still true, that every five years, medical knowledge doubles. Every five years, medical knowledge doubles. I can't understand that. But every discipline is growing. And we're doing more and more, more and more and more. Still, there's no one who knows everything. Not even teenagers. That was a joke. Okay. Uh, Only God possesses all knowledge. Jesus says he knows the number of hairs on our head. Some of us, that's easier to do than others. He knows the hearts and thoughts of every person inside. He knows what we're thinking. He's, you know, he knows all that we need. And because God is omniscient, he sees and knows us as no one else knows us. He, he, he knows me and all my faults and sins and quirks and weirdness and still loves me. Isn't that good? For each one of us. He knows how to bring good to me no matter what happens. And lastly, God is creator of all. Science has shown us this last hundred years how at the creation point, the scientists call it the singularity. 
at, at the point of creation, when, when, every, when the universe came into being, beginning of the universe, time was started. Time began. Space began. Matter began. And there's one more. Um, spiritual. Yeah, matter, time, space, and energy. All those things scientists today say, what the Bible teaches, that all that started at that point, at that singularity. And God created all matter. He created time. He created space. He created energy. Therefore, he is beyond matter. Matter can create matter, so he is spiritual. The spiritual created matter. He is timeless. He is eternal. Because he created time. He's outside of time and created time. Now, he chooses to come into time, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, but he's outside of time as well. And he is spaceless. He created space. Now, scientists today are telling us that the universe is expanding. Now, hang with me for a second. The universe is expanding not into something. It's not expanding into space. Space is expanding too. Okay, I'm, I'm going way past my understanding of anything. But even space is being expanding. And there's verses in the Bible that teach that too. We don't have time for that. And he is all-powerful. He made all energy. I just mentioned a moment ago. And we haven't said this yet, but all this kind of indicates that also God is personal. He's not an impersonal force because in the beginning, God created. Created is, is a verb. It's something a person does. God decided to, have, to make the universe. That's the decision. That's a part of being a person is making a volitional decision. God, at some point, I, can't, I don't have the words, uh, God decided when he decided, when, there's another word there, he created. Uh, and that shows that he's a person. You see, friends, we serve the eternal, unchanging, ever-present God who possesses all power and all wisdom. Without him by our side, we are most to be pitied. But God is with us. We know that we can trust him always to be with us no matter what to guide us and to protect us, to bring us home on the appointed day to live with him forever. He is Lord over all. Just because he's the creator, just because of that, we owe him everything. Let me conclude by reading one more passage of Scripture. We go from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 4. You can listen or you can turn there if you will. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we have a glimpse of, of worship in heaven. In chapter 4, really, the, the angelic beings and those in heaven are worshiping God as creator. Chapter 5 is redeemer. But chapter 4 is uh, creator. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, beginning at verse 4 through verse 11, which is most of the chapter. John writes, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones of 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with their six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night that never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, he's worthy of worship. If nothing else, just because he's a creator. We haven't got redemption at all yet. Just because if he's the creator, we ought to bow down and worship him. So this first one, it just sets the whole stage for the rest of the Bible. The main subject of chapter 1 is God and something God did. And that really is, is what the Bible is about. It's about God and what he did. I believe verse 1 calls us to recognize God, Elohim. Recognize Him as your creator, creator of the universe, creator of you, your Lord. Let us, let God be God, to trust Him, to rely on Him, because He loves you and knows you, be with you. These are all great comfort to me and hope to you. May we pray together, please. Father God, we call you Father because Jesus taught us that, but we just see in just this one verse who you are. And we praise you for your decision to create the universe. As we see in the first two chapters, how it was so good. It was just where you wanted it to be, according to your purposes. And I thank you, Father, for all you did in creation and all that's happening now, even because of that creation moment. We thank you for being our creator, for being our God, being our Lord. And may we walk with you. May we experience your presence with us in, in the troubled times and in the good times. Help us just to recognize your presence around us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.